listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 15 in the series. Today's episode is titled, The Wrath of Achilles. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number 15 of Trojan War, the podcast. Today's episode is titled, The Wrath of Achilles. Now, you will recall at the end of the previous episode that we we left poor, gentle, beloved Patroclus, Achilles' soulmate and best friend in the planet, dead at the base of the walls of the city of Troy. And and what Patroclus had done, of course, is in, in, in a desperate effort to attempt to save the Greeks from certain destruction, the Trojans were pressing down on them. The Greeks were, were essentially fighting to hold on to their ships so they could at least effect a retreat if things got any worse. And, and well, of course, Achilles was still refusing to fight because the Greek boats weren't quite yet on fire. Well, poor Patroclus had recognized that somebody needed to rally the Greek forces and, and to chase the Trojans away from those boats. So Patroclus, in, in an act of, well, courage and bravery, but likely also a fair bit of desperate foolishness, Patroclus had donned the glorious God-made armor of Achilles and got onto Achilles' glorious three-horsepower chariot and, and, and attempted to essentially, through a bit of smoke and mirrors deception, and convince the Trojans that really the Achilles, history's most dangerous weapon of mass destruction, had finally entered the battle. And, and so Patroclus had headed out across the plain in Achilles' armor, on Achilles' chariot, and the plan had worked absolutely wonderfully. They the Greeks had rallied, the Trojans had had making a stampede break for their walls in a panic, and and then, well, then the plan fell apart because Zeus chose to grant Patroclus a his own personal Aristea, and, and Patroclus, imbued with incredible military prowess and a thirst for battle, which he had never clearly experienced in his life before, had had, had charged Achilles' chariot and Achilles' armor across the plain and, and cut and hacked his way to glory until he'd made it to the very walls of Troy themselves. And then Patroclus, in, in overreaching himself, had actually attempted to, well, scale the walls of that city. Um, and of course, it would have been a violation of, of the ancient prophecy that the walls of Troy would never be taken by an enemy force. And that was the point, of course, as Patroclus overreached his grasp and attempted to, well, scale those walls and violate prophecy that Apollo had flown down from Mount Olympus, uh, put a mighty punch into the back of poor Patroclus. The, the glorious armor had collapsed off of Patroclus's body. Uh, stunned, he had fallen to the ground. Uh, a Trojan soldier had thrust a spear into his back, and as Patroclus lay there dying, Hector had come over and and thrust a spear into Patroclus's gut and finished him off. And so died gentle Patroclus outside the walls of Troy. Well, of course, Achilles was completely oblivious to all of this. So the, the battle was taking place all over the Trojan plain, and it, it was quite a distance from the Greek tents where Achilles was sitting and the actual walls of Troy. So as the battle was proceeding, uh, Achilles was actually back in his tent playing his lyre, oblivious to the fact that his best friend and soulmate in the world had just been killed by Hector. 
Well, when Hector actually managed to finish off Patroclus, Hector had, as his right, had gone over to strip the glorious armor and realized right away that it was not Achilles inside of that armor. And it was indeed Patroclus, a, a much lesser man and no warrior. But Hector, enamored by this glorious, stunning armor that was designed exclusively for Achilles and had actually been built by, well, the blacksmith god Hephaestus himself. Well, Hector had looked at the armor and, and, and charmed by the armor, had well, made a decision he shouldn't have made. Hector had decided that he would put that armor on himself. And and ladies and gentlemen, this can only be seen really as an, as an act of hubris, uh, overreaching pride or vanity on, on Hector's part. Hector was no Achilles. This was God-made armor designed for Achilles. And for Hector to presume to put it on, well, the chances of it ending well were never very good. And, and Hector already had a clear example. There, there lay Patroclus dead on the ground. Patroclus had presumed to wear the glorious armor of a greater man, and Patroclus had only lasted a few hours in that armor. So Hector should have recognized that after hubris, there's always in all the epic stories, nemesis, and, and putting on this armor was certainly going to lead to bad things for Hector. But uh, Hector flushed with uh, the delight in having received the armor and having killed uh, Achilles' soulmate and best friend in the planet. Uh, Hector naively or foolishly or arrogantly donned the glorious golden armor of Achilles. And, and, and at that point, ladies and gentlemen, a fearsome battle uh, or struggle took place outside the walls of Troy for, for the actual body or the corpse of Patroclus. The Trojan foot soldiers wanted to bring the corpse of Patroclus back inside the city walls of Troy. And, and, and the Greeks, of course, wanted to bring poor Patroclus' corpse back to the tent of Achilles for a proper funeral rites and a burial. So a fearsome struggle took place as, as the battle was going on in the rest of the field. And, and Ajax, the bulwark of the Greeks, the mightiest of the Greek fighters, had actually stood astride the poor corpse of Patroclus, uh, put his mighty shield over the corpse and, and howled like a, a lioness protecting her little cubs. And, and, and for a while, it, well, the struggle went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth over who was going to actually end up retrieving the body of poor dead Patroclus. Now, in the interim, it fell to a, a Greek warlord, a man named Antilochus, to, well, deliver the regrettable news personally to the tent of Achilles that, well, his beloved Patroclus was dead. So Antilochus made it to the tent. He, in, in fear and trembling, he he explained to Achilles precisely what had happened, that Patroclus was dead at the hands of Hector and, and, and that, well, Achilles' armor was now being worn by Hector, the man who had killed Patroclus. And, and we're told, ladies and gentlemen, that when Achilles received the news, something inside of Achilles, well, snapped. He, he, he changed. Uh, th this, is a, this was the fundamental tipping or turning point in the entire Trojan War epic. This, ladies and gentlemen, is, was the beginning of, well, a stage which is referred to in the opening lines of the Iliad where, where Homer invokes the muse to sing of the wrath of Achilles. Well, the wrath of Achilles begins here. And, and, and at this stage, Achilles snapped. He had lost his best friend in the planet. And Achilles, well, screamed, cried, and raged. And, and then in a very traditional Greek morning fashion, Achilles had rushed over to the cold ashes from the morning's fire and smeared his body with dirt and mud and ashes and covered his body and then cried and howled his pain. And, and of course, whenever Achilles cried and howled his pain and grief, his mother Thetis, who, who lived in the Aegean Sea in the Mediterranean, had swum up onto the shores and, and, and rushed to the side of her of her beloved son and to inquire about what was wrong and how, how mother might be able to help and make things better for her boy. So Thetis arrived at the shores of the Aegean and, and Achilles poured out the entire horrible story about what had happened with the armor deception plan and how Hector had managed to kill Patroclus. And 
And Achilles was beside himself. And at that stage, Thetis, looking for comfort, asked her son, well, what do you intend to do? And and Achilles, on the spot, did a complete change in his plans. You'll recall that what Achilles was intending to do was, was affect a, a rear guard action and help his Greek comrades sail safely away from Troy. But he certainly had decided just the day before that he had no further interest in fighting. He wanted to retire back to mainland Greece to his father's estates and settle down, lead a long, happy life of domestic bliss. He had no interest in honor, glory, or the, or the short life at all. And, and now suddenly with the death of Patroclus, Achilles, well, everything changed. Achilles turned around to his mother and, and declared that what his only purpose for living now would be, would be to personally avenge the death of poor Patroclus. Achilles said, I will stay at Troy, but I am not staying at Troy to help Agamemnon. I'm, I'm not staying at Troy to help the Greeks. I'm not staying in Troy for personal glory or honor of any of those things. I'm simply going to stay on the beaches of Troy so I can hunt down the son of a bitch who killed poor Patroclus. And, and, and that is my singular and only purpose in life now, mother. And, and of course, Thetis had turned around at this point and rightly reminded Achilles that were he to do so, well, obviously, the prophecy that he would lead a short and glorious life and die violently outside of the walls of Troy would would come true. And is this what Achilles really wanted? She reminded him that just the day before, he had wanted a long, peaceful, happy life. And, and now what was this? But Achilles had turned to his mother and actually spoken very bitter and firm words. I'll tell you what Homer says that Achilles said. Now I will go out and find the man who destroyed the life of my dearest friend. As for my own death, whatever Zeus and the other immortal gods wish it to come, I will welcome it. And mother, although I love you, do not attempt to hold me back any further. I will not listen. And ladies and gentlemen, Thetis, poor overprotective Thetis, likely at this point recognized that her lifetime of attempting to, to avert fate and deadly destiny and, and, and save her mortal son from all the things that had been prophesied even before his birth. Well, Thetis was running out of options. And, and you recall she had tried everything. Well, of course, after killing her first six children, improbably Achilles had come along and she'd, she had fallen in love with this boy. And, and then, of course, on Achilles' first day of life, she had personally delivered him to the river Styx and dipped him into that river, rendering his flesh immune from any form of physical injury. And, and then Achilles, of course, had been given the very best of, of education. He'd been tutored and mentored by a centaur, the very best. And, and then later on, of course, when war against Troy was in the wind and on the air, uh, Thetis had spirited her boy off, dressed as a girl, doing her best to protect him. And when, and when that hadn't worked, Thetis had actually, when Achilles had been dishonored by Agamemnon on the beach, Thetis had made a personal embassy up to, well, up to the throne of Zeus and, and, and come up with a plan to grant her son glory uh, on the battlefield. So, uh, so Thetis had really tried everything she could, but now it looked as though Achilles had finally and ultimately decided on what he was going to do. And it, all that mattered now was revenge and the killing of Hector. But Thetis wasn't done, and I suppose no mother ever is or can be done. So Thetis had departed her boy with this information and flown immediately up to Mount Olympus, throwing herself at the feet of Hephaestus, the god of the blacksmith, the god of the forge, if you will, and, and turned around and said, my, my, my boy tomorrow morning is going into battle. He needs a new set of glorious armor. Can you produce a set of armor in one night, which is even more glorious than the armor, which, well, he lost today. And, and, and Hephaestus, the, the blacksmith god, had, had said, I'll, I'll get on that right away and he went to work producing a, a stunning new gorgeous set of armor and a spectacular shield for Achilles to wear into battle the next day and and ladies and gentlemen it's really hard for us to know at this stage whether 
Thetis, a poor overprotective Thetis, genuinely believed that new, even more magical and glorious armor could actually avert the forces of fate and deadly destiny that were creeping up on her son Achilles, or or whether Thetis just wanted her, her dear boy Achilles to look his very best on the day that she believed he was fated to die outside the walls of Troy. Well, meanwhile, a struggle continued over the body of Patroclus, uh, and it looked for the briefest time as though the Greeks might lose that struggle because Hector was now back fighting on the Trojan side for that body, and Hector was wearing this glorious golden armor, which which seemed to have imbued Hector with a temporary, incredible military prowess. And, and I want to stop here, folks, and and kind of review, well, why are the Greeks and the Trojans spending so much time fighting over this body? What's what, what's the big deal? Patroclus is dead. Why commit your best man in the battlefield over a corpse? And, and I think that there's a few reasons for it, but the primary one is that whether the Greeks and the Trojans were aware of it or not, the fight over Patroclus was actually a proxy fight between the Greeks and the Trojans over, well, the body of Achilles. And, and you have to understand that Achilles, everybody knew, was this this strange, inaccessible man. For the, for the Trojans, Achilles was, well, half man, half god, and he had been the scourge of their kingdom, and he frightened them all to death, and he had butchered and hacked his way through huge parts of the Trojan nobility. I mean, and, and as a consequence, well, the Trojans, they figured that even if Achilles did die on the battlefield someday, and that was maybe very improbable, given all the stories and the myths about the river Styx, well, the Trojans thought, we might never get a chance to seek our revenge on Achilles, or on his corpse because he's just as magical man and if he ever dies even who knows what the gods will do with that body so so for the Trojans Patroclus was the proxy Patroclus was Achilles's dearest soulmate and best friend in the world and so the Trojan plan was to to take Patroclus's body back inside the city of Troy and desecrate and mutilate that body because that was as close as they were ever going to get to desecrating and mutilating the body of Achilles himself so that's why the Trojans wanted the body and and for the Greeks well Achilles was a strange, singular, individual man who sat alone in his tent on the end of the beach most of the time playing his lyre and refusing to fight. Or He wasn't part of the community of, of men. He, he, he seemed like a, a very inaccessible individual, even to the Greek companions who were sitting with him on the beach. And so for the Greeks, well, their only access point in the humanity of, of Achilles, any way of understanding the, the soul of Achilles or grasping onto some part of what Achilles might be like was, was well, through his beloved companion Patroclus, who was very much human and very much cared for and liked by everybody inside the Greek army. So I think as the Greeks stood there and fought over the body of Patroclus to, to protect that body, well, certainly they wanted to bring it back to Achilles. But to a certain degree, I think at times they likely thought that this was as close to Achilles as they were ever, ever going to get. So so both sides fought fiercely, fiercely over that body and, and, and the fighting went on all day. Well, towards dusk, uh, the fighting's still going on, and Achilles now, well, knowing that he couldn't go into battle until his mother had produced this glorious new set of armor, Achilles decided to come up with a plan to save the body of Patroclus from the Trojans, and, and guided by Athena, who had flown down to Achilles' side, Achilles did something rather remarkable. He stepped out from the Greek camp, and, and he found himself a high point of land along the beach, and 
Achilles stood on that high point of land as the sun was going down. So you have to imagine the scene. It was it was a sound and light show, really. Achilles stood on that high point of land with with a full beaming fiery red sun behind him, and and then Athena did her very best to well cloak Achilles in in magical, amazing, deific properties. So Achilles appeared ten times as large as he really was, and 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 for the Trojans looking across the plain, even from the walls of Troy, they could. Suddenly, see this this massive, monstrous being, this this fighter Achilles, who was superhuman in size, and it looked as though he was bathed in flame, or was a ball of flame himself. And and then Athena instructed Achilles to howl out his war cry into the night sky three times. And Athena used deific amplification skills, and and, and the war cry echoed and boomed and resonated across the Trojan plain and bounced off the walls of the city. And and we are told that Achilles' war cry, well panicked the Trojans to the point where they they abandoned their fight for the body of Patroclus and, and they stampeded away from anywhere near Achilles towards the walls of the city. In fact, Homer tells us that 12 good Trojan soldiers were actually trampled to death trying to run away from Achilles' voice alone. And, and at that point, well, as the sun set and the Trojans panicked and ran, well, the Greeks managed to carefully bring the body of Patroclus back into the tent of Achilles, and they laid the body of Patroclus onto the bed of Achilles, and and then the Greek warlords began to wail and howl their grief and pain in anguish into the night. Well, at this point, night falling, I want to bring you inside of the command tent of Hector, commander of the Trojan forces, and, and Hector is now meeting with the warlords, mapping out, if you will, the next day's plan of attack in battle. And the last couple of days have been really, really good days for the Trojans. Uh, they've certainly been ascendant on the battlefield, and they've got the Greeks on the run. As I said, the Greeks are, are at the point where they're basically just holding on desperately and, and, and hoping that if they can manage long enough, the real Achilles might enter the battle. So the, the Trojan plan has been very simple for the last few days. What the Trojans have been doing is actually camping out on the plain, as opposed to bringing the soldiers back inside the walls every night. And, and the reason for this, of course, is that the Trojans are fully expected that the Greeks, some of these nights, one of these nights, are going to make a break back across the Aegean Sea for home. And, and Hector and the other Trojan warriors know that if this happens in the middle of the night, they want to be close enough to the action that, well, they can send the Greeks packing with plenty of Trojan spears and arrows in their backs. So, so that's been the plan. But now as the war council is meeting in the tents out in the middle of the battlefield and night is falling, well, there's a new variable. And the new variable, of course, is, well, Achilles. And just from the sound of his war cry and his howling of the night before and and what the Greeks know about his relationship, or the Trojans know about Achilles' relationship with Patroclus, it's it's very, very likely that Achilles is going to enter the fray the next day. So it, it's decision time. What do we do? What what strategy do we use? So so Hector had polled his his generals and and his senior general, one of the most intelligent men inside of the Trojan army, was a was a man named Polydamus. He apparently had an Odysseus-like mind and oratorical skills. So Polydamus had stepped forward, and Polydamus had presented a a case for extreme caution and prudence in the next day's fight. Polydamus had said, listen, so far we've done very well in the battlefield and we, we have superior numbers because the Greek forces have, have been so badly damaged. But now if Achilles enters the fray in the morning, well, that changes everything. You saw what Achilles managed to do to our foot soldiers today just by screaming. Twelve good men trampled to death trying to run away from a voice. Uh, imagine
imagine what will happen tomorrow if Achilles actually shows up in armor on the battlefield. So Polydamus had turned around and said, what we should do is get our entire army tonight back in behind the walls of Troy. And we know the prophecies, those walls will never be breached by an enemy force. So we'll just stay safely inside of our walls. And if Achilles ventures too close to the walls, well, we'll just call down arrows and spears onto him. But in the meantime, it would be foolhardy for us to actually venture across the plains and, and fight the Greeks with Achilles now in the army tomorrow morning. So that had been Polydamus's advice. And it was good, sage, prudent, calm, sensible advice. And, and sadly and ironically, it was the kind of advice that normally the Trojans could count on Hector giving, but not this evening. And whether it was Hector's glorious day of fighting or the joy of having killed Patroclus, or whether it was that armor, that, that inappropriate armor, Achilles' armor, God-given armor that Hector was now presuming to wear that clouded Hector's judgment and good senses. Well, Hector turned around and he disagreed with Polydamus and he actually mocked Polydamus fiercely. He turned around and he called Polydamus a coward. He, and then Hector declared, I'm tired. I've been, we've been camped inside of these walls, holed up in here, afraid of the Greeks for 10 years. And now we have them down in the beach. We have them on the run. I don't want to go back inside of my city now and, and, and turn back to siege warfare. We will take the army out tomorrow. We will keep them on the plane. And, and if Achilles enters the battle and comes and attacks, so much the worst for him. Hector bragged, I will not run from that man. I will take him on myself. And, and well, that presented the two options for the morning. And then the other warlords turned around, listened to the two speeches, and, well, likely did what nations and warlords always do. Uh, when, when one course of action involves quiet counsel and reason and retreat, and the other course of action involves braggadocio and beating the drums of war and, and, and brag, bragging about incredible feats of military glory, well, most individuals, most soldiers, and most nations always listen to the latter and ignore the former. And, and, and that's what happened that night. Uh, the Trojans roared their approval of Hector's plan for the morning, and Polydamus shook his head and walked away. Well, dawn came, and at first light of dawn, Thetis was back at the tent of her beloved son Achilles with stunning new God-made armor, and, and how Hephaestus, the blacksmith, had managed to pull off the armor that he made for Achilles in, in one night. Well, obviously, uh, time must travel differently up on Mount Olympus, because th this armor was stunning, ladies and gentlemen. It, it was so awe-inspiring that, well, when Achilles looked at it, it, it filled his heart with a thirst for battle and, and, and a thirst to hunt down Hector and kill him. But when any other man stepped into the tent of Achilles to, to view the armor, it had the opposite effect. Every other man looking at the armor including Greeks, cowered in fear and terror from it. it. It was so fearsomely glorious that really even normal human beings had a hard time even looking at this armor. So it was going to be devastating inside of battle that day. And and Achilles, delighted with his new armor and, and thirsting to get out onto the field of battle and fight, even as dawn, as the sun was just rising, Achilles had marched down to the end of the beach. He recognized it before he went into battle. What he wanted to do was bury the hatchet with Agamemnon. It was time to end the Achilles-Agamemnon feud over Achilles' honor and, and over the slave girl Briseis because what Achilles wanted to do that morning was lead the entire Greek warlords into glorious battle and then hunt down Hector. So a Achilles got to the command tent of the warlords and they, they were all gathered. They, they hadn't even had breakfast yet. Most of them were still rubbing the sleep out of their eyes and a a Achilles marched in and, and enthusiastic for war and not wanting to waste any time had, had roused Agamemnon and turned around and and declared that he was ready to fight and he wanted to put an end to the feud between he and Agamemnon. And Achilles then turned around and, well, likely spoke the most self-absorbed and, and, and understated word in the entire history of Epic. He turned around to Agamemnon and in his summary of what had happened with the Briseis feud, which had kept Achilles from fighting while thousands and thousands and thousands of Greeks had died, Achilles turned around and I'll tell you what he said. He said, 
Only Hector and the Trojans have profited from it. As for the Greeks, I am sure they will remember our feud for a very long time, Agamemnon. And, and, and that has got to be the understatement of absolutely all understatements. Uh, the reason why the Greeks were standing there in the beach, their, their forces decimated and contemplating retreat, was because of this feud between Achilles and Agamemnon that had kept Achilles out of the fighting. Well, at this stage, Agamemnon, recognizing that Achilles was back and was finally going to do something useful for the Greek army, Agamemnon, the politician, had immediately, immediately, immediately buried the hatchet. He had turned around. He had, he had publicly apologized to Achilles for the whole Briseis incident. And, and just, ladies and gentlemen, it looked as though Agamemnon, the politician, was actually going to well, if you will, accept some responsibility for his foolish decision to have to have taken away Briseis those weeks ago. Well, Agamemnon, the greasy politician, couldn't resist. He launched into a defense and he explained that while some men might criticize me for what I did back then with Briseis, uh, it really wasn't my fault. It, it, it wasn't me. It was the gods. They forced me. Uh, they, they caused me to make crazy and foolish decisions. So don't blame me. I, I, I'm beyond blame in this entire affair. And, and Agamemnon then went on at length in his speech explaining how he bore absolutely no moral or political culpability for the entire achilles Briseis incident, uh, a speech so long that even Nestor was bored by the end of it. And, and, and once Agamemnon had finished justifying his behavior and washing his hands of anything, then Agamemnon had turned around and very prudently watching Achilles had, had said, and, and, and now uh, allow me to go and, and get all the, all the gifts, all the reparation compensation payments, which my embassy offered you a few days ago. Just wait here, Achilles. I will get the gifts and I will gloriously present them to you. And, and Achilles' response was, meh. Achilles couldn't have cared less about anything that morning. He said, I, I don't care about your gifts, Agamemnon. I don't need to give them to me if you want, but I don't really care. All I want to do is go kill Hector and cut his body up into little pieces. So let's get on with it. And and then Agamemnon turned around and said, well, well, Achilles, I should actually give you back Briseis, the cause of the whole incident. And, and so Agamemnon had made a great formal speech. He had dropped in front of the statue of the god Zeus in his command tent, and he had sworn that in the entire time that Briseis had spent in his tent, he had not so much as once even touched the girl. And and then he brought Briseis back in and said, here she is, Achilles. And, and Achilles had turned around and, well, dismissed Briseis out of hand. He, he was no longer interested in that either. He said, it likely would have been a better thing if the day I'd found her and captured her in battle I had to kill her with a spear or a sword for all the misery and trouble she's caused us Greeks. And, and of course, Achilles, again, was completely missing the point. Poor Briseis hadn't caused the Greeks any misery or trouble at all. Achilles and Agamemnon had authored all of that. Well, at this stage... Odysseus watching on, Odysseus, the cleverest of the warlords, was beginning to grow alarmed. It was, it was clear that Achilles was had become, at the death of Patroclus, completely unhinged. His responses were disproportional, and, and Achilles had always had disproportionate responses. Remember, you know, when Agamemnon had dishonored him and taken Briseis, Achilles' response had been to not fight and instead cheer for the Trojans and watch tens of thousands of Greeks die as, as Achilles nursed his dishonor. And, and now, of course, well, Patroclus had died, only one man, and he, Patroclus was Achilles' best friend, but if you think about it, ladies and gentlemen, Patroclus had actually died wearing armor on a battlefield while he was attacking. Uh, surely Achilles must have accepted or thought that, well, if I send Patroclus out to fight, this th this is a very reasonable thing that happens in war is men die on the battlefield. And there was nothing particularly unique or horrific about Patroclus' death. But now Achilles was treating the death of Patroclus as if it was the very end of recorded history in the world itself. He was now vowing to go out and wreak a singular havoc and revenge on Hector and all of Troy for the death of 
of one man. So, so Odysseus worrying that Achilles is proportionality and a sense of, of appropriateness was lost and had turned around to Achilles and said, listen, son, wait, before you head out to fight, uh, sit down. Uh, we, we need to mourn the death of Patroclus a bit longer and and you need to eat. You haven't eaten and, and an empty belly is no way to mourn the dead and an empty belly is certainly no way to go into battle. So so Odysseus had counseled Achilles to sit down with the other warlords and Odysseus, of course, if if you were living in the 21st century, would have recognized that Achilles was deep into the stages of the grief process and, and bouncing between bargaining, denial, and, and rage or wrath, and, and that the best psychological therapy for Achilles at this stage was the company of his fellow men. Uh, Achilles was dangerous when he was isolated and brooded on his own, and Odysseus said, sit with us, break bread, and we'll talk about Patroclus, and, and, and Odysseus did his best to try to draw Achilles back into the land of reasonable, balanced, living men, and, and, and Achilles was having none of it. He turned around to Odysseus, he said, I, I promise you this, Odysseus, I will not eat, I will not drink, until I have hunted down Hector, hacked off his miserable head and brought that head back to the tent uh, and the body of my dear Patroclus. Achilles went on and said, and further, when I come back to the tent of Patroclus before I bury him, I will hunt down today 12 Trojan boys and I will bring those boys back and on the day when I burn Patroclus and, and give him the proper funeral rites, I will slit the throats of those 12 boys and throw them onto the funeral pyre of my beloved Patroclus. And, and ladies and gentlemen, well, desecrating the body of of a noble enemy warrior and hacking off his head was was already a, a violation of all human decent conduct in warfare. But Achilles was now proposing well mass human sacrifice of children, which was well beyond the pale and one of the greatest taboos inside of ancient Greek Bronze Age society. So, so Odysseus had once again attempted to to calm Achilles and say, "Wait, do not do these things. Wait." But Achilles had turned around at that stage and and said, "No." And and if you you Greeks aren't ready to go out and me, then I will enter the battle and I will hunt down the Trojans and I will find Hector and I will kill him on my own and wasting no more time. Achilles strode out of the command tent and headed across the plain to, to enter battle at dawn without a single other Greek man on the beach. Now I want to stop for a moment and just go back to this poor corpse of Patroclus, folks, because Achilles has vowed that he will not give Patroclus his proper funeral rites until he has hunted down and butchered Hector. And well, that might take a little bit of time. And, and it's important for us to understand a few things about Greek ideas of, of death and dying. Patroclus's spirit or his, his psyche or his soul, if you want to call it, has, has now left his body. And, and when men died in the ancient Bronze Age world, that, that psyche or that spirit would then travel to the land of the dead and leave the land of the living. But you could not make that journey from the land of the living to the land of the dead unless the proper funeral rites had been performed on your body first. And until those funeral rites were performed on a man's body, well, the man's psyche or spirit or his ghost, if you will, was trapped between the land of the living and the dead. So so poor Patroclus, the first thing that Achilles should have done that morning is held a proper funeral for Patroclus so that his beloved friend could actually make it to the next life. But instead, Achilles, who claimed to be wanting to revenge Patroclus, but was on a personal vendetta of grief and misery and wrath for his own inner demons, was leaving poor Patroclus lying there in the tent. And you've got to recall that Patroclus had been killed by a javelin in the back and a spear in the gut. So Patroclus's ghost or, or psyche or spirit, if you will, was now traveling around the Trojan plain, not quite living and not quite dead with these horrible, horrible wounds and, and, and incapable of, of actually moving into peace into the next life. And, and, and it was Achilles and his singular 
obsession with hunting down Hector and killing Hector before he burned and buried Patroclus, which was the cause of all of this. So Achilles was doing absolutely no good or, or showing absolutely no care even for the man most in the world that he loved. Well, Achilles headed out onto the battlefield, and we are told that on that particular day, um, Zeus granted Achilles, well, the Aristea of all Aristeas inside of all epics, because as Achilles headed out onto the battlefield that day to do combat with the Trojans, not a single other Greek soldier, either a foot soldier or a warlord, actually stepped onto the plains of Troy that day to fight. And so that day, the fight was Achilles versus all of Troy. And during the course of that day, well, Achilles was winning. He slaughtered and butchered common Trojan foot soldiers and Trojan warlords and generals and great fighters in the tens of thousands that day, we are told. It was it was an absurdly ridiculous day of fighting as Achilles wrecked this wrath and vengeance on everything Trojan. And, and Homer tells us that if you looked into Achilles' eyes that day, he had the humanity was missing. Achilles' eyes were, were a blank pitiless stare. Achilles at moments in that day's fighting looked looked like a deity and in other moments in that day's fighting he appeared more like a monster. But the one thing that Achilles certainly didn't appear like on that day was, was a reasonable or a rational or a normal human being. Well, the gods uh, did their very best to protect the cream of the Trojans, some of the Trojans that they wanted to save. And so, so there were gods down in the field that day, liberally using their mist to shroud Trojans and then spirit them off to the safety behind the walls before Achilles could hack them. And, and, and of course, I should likely stop here and, and remind you about the Trojan prince Aeneas. And, and it's a fun story, folks. If you remember a few days ago when Diomedes was granted his Aristea and, and Diomedes had come up against the Trojan prince Aeneas, well, Diomedes had been about to kill Aeneas. He, was, he had crushed him, I believe. That he had thrown a rock at him and Aeneas should have been dead. But the Trojans, uh, as they were watching this happening, had suddenly seen Aeneas's body enveloped in a thick coating of mist. And, and obviously the Olympian gods had rushed down and protected Aeneas, covered him in mist, and then spirited him back inside the walls of Troy and restored him to health because the the Olympian gods knew that, well, fate and deadly destiny required that Aeneas be alive for some future story down the road, and I can't tell you what it is without plot spoilers. But here a few days later, Aeneas found himself in the field of battle confronting Achilles, and, and it looked as though Achilles was about to kill Aeneas, and on this day, even more Olympian gods flew down and, and used the mist. But this time, instead of covering Aeneas in mist and spiriting him off, they, uh, the god Poseidon actually threw a lot of mist into Achilles' eyes, and Achilles, temporarily blinded, couldn't, couldn't see Aeneas, and, and before he could deliver the last death blow, well, um, Poseidon had grabbed Aeneas and spirited him back off safely inside the walls of Troy. So, so clearly, this Aeneas guy was going to have to have some future point of fate or deadly destiny because gods on both sides in this war were going out of their way to protect Aeneas. But Aeneas was one of the fortunate Trojans on that day. Almost everybody else that Achilles met was much less fortunate. Uh, late in the day, Achilles actually took a, a brief pause from his butchery to, to hunt down and chase down 12 Trojan young men. These were really boys, uh, 10 or 12-year-old kids that had inadvertently got themselves outside the walls of Troy and hadn't realized that the Greeks were going to come in with Achilles behind them. And, and, and so Achilles hunted down these boys, grabbed them, uh, roped them up, and then, and, and then sent them back to his own command tent with orders that these were the boys whose throats were going to be slit when, when he found Hector and then when he ultimately buried Patroclus. And then 
Achilles had re-entered the fray. He had, he had tracked down another Trojan warlord, a, a, another guy that really shouldn't have been fighting, but the Trojans by this stage were desperate. And, and that warlord, a guy named Lacan, had, had immediately done the prudent thing when Achilles approached. And Lacan had dropped to his knees, thrown aside his sword and his shield, taken off his helmet, and, and assumed the, the Trojan and the Greek supplication position. A, a Lacan had, had grasped at Achilles' knee with one hand and grasped at Achilles' chin with the other. And, and that was a good way of showing supplication because it showed he didn't have a concealed weapon. And, and then Lacan, Lacan had looked up to Achilles and exposed his throat and begged mercy of Achilles and, and said, please, Achilles, spare my life. I, I'm, no, I'm no threat to you and I'm, I'm no great warrior. Please let me go. And Achilles had turned around and, and informed Lacan that prior to the death of Patroclus, Achilles was inclined to grant mercy in battle. But, but now that Patroclus was dead, Achilles said, because Patroclus has died, all Trojans must die. I will show no mercy to you, Lacan. And then Achilles, very viciously and cruelly, had turned around to Lacan and said, and, and, and what's the big deal about death anyway? Uh, Patroclus is dead, and he's a way better man than you, Lacan. And, and look at me. I'm a warrior. I'm a hero. My mother was a god, and I am destined to die, and I'm a vastly better man than any man on this plane. So, so suck it up, son. We all have to die. What's all the complaining about? And with that, Achilles had taken his sword and severed off poor Lacan's head and thrown Lacan's torso into the River. And and folks, by this stage, Achilles had thrown so many torsos and, and, and Trojan bodies into the river that this glorious river had actually become clogged and polluted and wasn't flowing again. And at that stage, well, because this was the Aristea to end all Aristeas inside of Greek epic, well... Achilles had an opportunity to fight a god. The river god stepped out of the river, turned around and said, uh, you're desecrating my river. My beautiful streams aren't flowing. And, and Achilles wanted to continue to throw dead corpses in because he wasn't done with his butchery. He had turned around and, and attacked the river god himself. And, and as in all the great Aristeas that I've talked about, uh, the individual actually sometimes even takes on a deity and comes close to winning. And Achilles almost vanquished the river god on that day. Well, late in the afternoon, the inevitable happened. Uh, Polydamus's advice to the Trojan warriors and the night before his council came true and the Trojan foot soldiers and the Trojan army had had, had enough of this and they and they turned tail and in a panic they they stampeded for the walls of the city. Uh, Homer tells us that panicking like fawns they ran as quickly as they could for the safety of their walls fearful of what Achilles had become and the havoc that he was personally wrecking in that battlefield and and well once the the panic and the rout was on well then it was easy pickings for Achilles and he just running around that battlefield, still the only Greek on the field, butchered and hacked and killed his way. And soon, ladies and gentlemen, the, the Trojan soldiers who had made it back to the wall, Priam inside, the old king, had, had had panicked and opened the gates to let as many of the Trojans in as he could. But as Achilles approached and got somewhat near the gates, Priam, in a panic, had actually barred and closed those gates, prematurely so afraid he was of Achilles. And, and outside of the gates, Priam had barred a few hundred of the Trojan soldiers and his own dear son, Hector, who found themselves outside the gates of Troy as the Achilles approached. Well, Achilles, recognizing that there was now no place of escape for the remaining few hundred Trojan men who had actually not made it inside the walls, Achilles began a pursuit of each of those men individually far and wide across the Trojan plain. And wherever the men ran, Achilles chased them down and hacked them and killed them and showed no mercy. And, and while he was doing this, of course, Hector found himself standing alone outside the main gate of the city of Troy, outside of those walls. And 
I, I want to turn your attention, folks, up to the, the top of the battlements of Troy and what was happening there. Because as Hector stood outside of the main gate of the city of Troy and looked up, well, all of Troy was now assembled on those walls, looking down on Hector. His parents were there. Old man Prime was there. His mother Hecuba was there. The entire royal family of Troy was there. The soldiers who had made it back inside and had been fit enough and, and, and not wounded so badly had climbed up. And so you have to imagine that these huge battlements of Troy were now ringed by Trojans watching the, the mutilation and the horror happening in the battlefield below. In, in fact, the only Trojan not watching was Hector's wife, Andromache the fighting had become too much for her. She had got tired every day of watching her her husband, her dear husband, going to battle and not knowing whether he was going to return that night. So Andromache had decided that she would she would do her best to maintain a normal domesticity in the routine and, and just hope that the gods protected her husband. So Andromache, as on every other day, the Tector went out to fight, had, had gone to her, her bed chambers and, and was working on a loom and, and, and tending to a Steinax and, and oblivious to what was actually happening in the field of battle that day. Well, as the Trojan royal family looked down and saw Hector there, they, they looked across the plain. And if you looked on the far, far end of the plain near the Greek the Greek camp itself, you could see uh, the gold glistening armor of, uh, of Achilles. He was still clearly chasing down the last of the Trojans who had decided to escape in that direction. And, and, and it was like watching this gold shooting star zooming back and forth across the Trojan plain. And, and the Trojans recognized that once Achilles had killed the last of the of the Trojan foot soldiers, he would be returning and coming after Hector himself. So old man Priam looked down from the battlements and and, and he implored Hector. He, he begged out to his son. He said, Hector, my boy, get inside of the walls. What are you doing out there? You have a few moments and Achilles is going to come back. And and Priam didn't mince his words. He, he said, and if you have to fight Achilles, well, you will die, son. Achilles is the better man. You will not stand a chance. And, and well, that might not seem like the most uh, comfortable or cheering or optimistic thing for a dad to say to his son, well, Priam was no fool and he knew it was a factual statement. So, so Priam had then turned around and, and in a panic had begun to delineate or, or prophecy, if you will, what would happen if Hector died and the Greeks managed to get inside the walls of Troy because there was no Hector there to protect them anymore. And, and it was a horrific, horrific, horrific prophecy. Priam said, uh, uh, the Greeks will come into the walls and the first thing they'll do, of course, is they'll, they'll round up our women and they'll rape all the young girls and, and then they'll butcher all of our, our, our young men. And, and then what they'll do is they'll, they'll find the children and the babies and, and, and the future of Troy and they'll throw all those children from the battlements to the rocks below and, and those ch children will die horrific deaths and, and, and then they'll come in and they'll round up the old women and they'll pack them onto boats as slaves and, and then they'll come looking for me and eventually some Trojan will, will put a spear into my gut and when I'm lying there and they've hacked me to bits, well my own dogs will eat my entrails and, and poor Priam presented this horrific, horrific prophecy of the worst case scenario of what might happen to the city of Troy and, and finishing it he turned around and he, he concluded, he said, so get inside the walls, Hector. We, we can't allow these things to happen. And, and then it was Hecuba's turn, uh, Hector's mom, to speak up. And, and, and Hecuba, wailing and, and, and screaming and, and, and hysterical and worried for her son, had, well, she hadn't prophesied what would happen to Troy. She instead turned around and prophesied what would happen immediately if, if Achilles killed Hector sometime in the next few moments. And, and she, she didn't mince words. She said, he, he, the, the man's a madman. Watch him. I, I've been watching him all day from the battlements. He, he, he's, he's inhuman. He will not spare your body. He, he, will, he will do great indignities to your body. And Hector, you will end up finding your corpse behind the Greek town and the dogs and the birds will a prey will consume you and you won't have a proper burial and, and then my son well you will walk 
caught between the land of the living and the dead for all eternity with horrifying wounds. Uh, uh, and, and so, Hector, look after yourself. Uh, take some pity on your poor mother who raised you and come back inside the walls of the city. And, and, and the two parents begged and pleaded with their son, but I want you folks to try to imagine, well, what it was like to be poor Hector because the decision he faced was absolutely horrifying. Well, first of all, the the flush of yesterday's glory and, and his bold boasting about not running from Achilles and, and the Trojans being the stronger force, well, that was certainly gone. And, and Hector recognized as he stood and he looked at the plain and he saw the tens and thousands of Trojan men dead in that plain, that his advice and counsel of the day before, where he had said, no, we will stay and we will fight, as, and, and mocked uh, Polydamus's prudent advice of getting the army back inside the city, well, Hector's advice had so damaged and destroyed the Trojan army that the Trojans would never actually be able to come out and, and, and field a fight against the Greeks again. There were not enough Trojans left. Forget about Achilles. The Trojan army on this day had been routed beyond any possible repair, and, and Hector recognized that it was all on him. It had been his leadership decision, his foolish decision, his bragging, which had led to today's rout. And so for Hector to turn around and, and step back inside the walls of the city at this particular point, well... Well, he he would he would have been ashamed to do it. He as, as he talks out loud to himself in, in in this particular scene, folks. And and Hector goes, well, "What am I going to do? Go back inside of the city and and stand in front of the people of Troy and say, yep, and now I'm running inside the walls. I, the guy who promised I would take on Achilles and I wasn't afraid of him.' And, and so, Hector, well governed by, well, pride or shame or, or depending on how you view Hector and his decision right now, by continued foolishness, had, had said, I can't go inside of those walls. I have to stay and fight. But, but even as he said it, Hector knew in his heart of hearts that he was going to die if he fought Achilles. He, Achilles was simply the better man. Hector was, was a brilliant soldier, but Achilles was the child of a god. It, it wasn't going to be a, a real fight between balanced combatants, whatever happened. So, so as Hector stood there outside of the walls and, and he saw Achilles beginning to speed across the plain, and, and he could see the gold armor getting larger and larger and looming down on him. Hector, well, I suppose as any condemned man might, started grasping at straws, because Hector didn't want to die. He he had no interest in fighting. If, if Hector had have had his way, if things had have turned out the way Hector wanted in his life, he, he would have been a father and, and, and a husband and, 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 you know, a son of healthy parents and, and have governed over a happy Troy at peace. But that had not been what fate or deadly destiny had, had laid out for the city of Troy or for poor Hector and now he was in this situation. So as he, as he stood there grasping at straws and wondering, how can I avert my death? Uh, ideas went through his head. And he, for a brief moment, he thought that what he might do is actually remove his armor. And when Achilles approached, uh, Hector would approach him not as a fighter, but as a diplomat and, and propose some sort of a diplomatic solution to the war. Hector thought, I, I, I can give back Helen and, and I can take the reparation payments I offered them a few weeks ago and I, I can double or triple those payments. And well, even at this stage, Hector knew that there was a possibility that the other Greek warlords would have accepted this, but Hector knew in his heart of hearts that Achilles' universe had now boiled down to one singular point of hatred and rage and wrath, and, and Achilles wasn't interested in, in diplomatic negotiations or reparations or anything like that. Hector knew that Achilles was going to kill him. So, so Hector had abandoned that brief hope and, and then done, I suppose, what we would all do at this point, which was try to buck ourselves up and, and, and make ourselves believe that we actually have a fighting chance in the battle to come. And so Hector had reviewed his resume. He had reminded himself that he was a great fighter that, and that he was a brilliant man and he had nothing to fear. But, but even as he did it, and even as he tried to buck up his own internal courage, Hector, deep in his heart of hearts, knew that he was a condemned man when Achilles arrived. 
And that moment happened about a minute later. Achilles came speeding across the plane. He got up to Hector and Homer tells us that Achilles looked like some bird of prey plummeting out from clouds uh, onto some helpless defenseless dove standing there below. And, and, and at this particular point, as Achilles approached and drew his sword, Hector, recognizing it was going to be trial by single champion, Hector had stepped forward and raised his hand and stopped Achilles and, and, and did what what any reasonable man did before one of these fights to the death by single champion happened. Uh, Hector outlined the proposed terms of the fight or the battle. And and what Hector proposed, of course, is, well, the standard terms. He turned around to Achilles and he said, listen, we will we each have a spear, we each have a sword, we each have a shield. So we will throw our spears first and and then we will use our swords and, and, and our shields and, and one of us will end up dead on the battlefield. But then Hector got on to the crucial, crucial things that were always discussed and negotiated before these fights. And Hector said, and listen, if Achilles, if I beat you today, well, I will strip your glorious armor from your body and take it as my prize of battle, as as is my right. And and Achilles, I w- I understand that you will do the same if you defeat me. But 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 then Achilles, further, if I kill you today in battle, then I promise you, Achilles, that I will return your body to your own people, so you can have the proper funeral rites which are your due, and and you can travel to to, to the afterlife in peace. And, and and then Hector, desperate at this point, as he looked into the bleak, black, pitiless eyes of Achilles, had had, had said. And Achilles, please, will you promise me the same treatment if you kill me? Well, Achilles on that day, folks, was beyond the pale. He should have said yes. He should have agreed to the terms. This is what honorable warlords did with each other. But Achilles had snapped, as I told you, and Achilles instead started to laugh and giggle and curse Hector. He turned around and he said, there will be negotiations with you, Hector. I will not negotiate with you. Lions do not negotiate with sheep. Here is what I'm going to do, Hector. Hector, once I kill you, Hector, I will strip your armor and throw it aside. But then, Hector, what I'm going to do is I am going to mutilate and desecrate your corpse. Hector, there will be no funeral for you. Hector, in fact, if I can will myself to do it, if I have the stomach to do it, Hector, before I throw your sorry body to the dogs and the birds, Hector, I am going to consume and eat your living flesh. So do not talk to me about deals, Hector, you son of a bitch. Stand up and fight. And ladies and gentlemen, it was very clear in Achilles's threat to actually engage in that other huge and great social taboo of Bronze Age culture, cannibalism, that that Homer and the storytellers are making it very clear to us that Achilles is, is now beyond the pale. He has transgressed all reasonable and balanced and humane or human approaches to dealing with life or with loss or with tragedy or with grief. Achilles is now, is now, as I said, he's, he's part monster, he's part God, but he's certainly no longer human being. And, and, and Hector at this point, recognizing that there was going to be no quarter and, and, and Hector fearful, of course, for these violent things that Achilles was going to do. Hector, who had promised only the day before that he would never run from the Achilles. Hector did, well, the sensible thing that we would all do. Hector turned tail and fled as fast as he could, hoping that he could he, he could somehow make it back inside of one of the three gates of the city and, and they could open the gate just enough that he could get inside before Achilles was on him. And, and so Hector began to sprint around the walls of Troy as fast as his legs would carry him. And, and, and Achilles, swift-footed Achilles, jogged behind at a distance, hunting down Hector and, 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 and essentially playing Hector like a cat might play 
play a wounded mouse. And, and every time that Hector would make a, a sprint for a gate and, and, and yell up to the people, let me in, I, I have a chance, Achilles would put on a burst of speed and, and, and drive Hector away from the gates and away from the walls and out onto the open plain where and the Trojans standing in those battlements could not rain down arrows or spears onto Achilles and in any way help poor Hector. And the whole thing, as Troy watched, looked like some form of horrifying foot race, some sort of some sort of an event as Hector ran and, and Achilles ran and then Hector ran faster and Achilles picked up the pace. But but unlike any sort of normal foot race, the prize at the end of this one that they were racing for was, of course, the, the very life of Hector himself. And for Hector, the, the, the race, the running from gate to gate to gate, attempting to get into the city and never quite making it became, well, you know, those those horrifying nightmares we all seem to have, ladies and gentlemen, those nightmares where, well, something is chasing us, a, a, a person or a monster is chasing us. And, and, and no matter how hard we try to run, or, our legs feel as though they're stuck. They, they won't move. It's like they're, they're in molasses or quickstand. And, and we kick and we thrash in our bed trying to move our legs and our nightmares sleep. And, and, and whatever it is that's chasing us seems to be gaining on us and gaining on us and gaining on us. And we can never, no matter how hard we try, seem to get away. And, and well, usually we wake up from these bathed in a sweat and realize it's just our legs stuck in the sheets. But for, for Hector on this day, that was a sensation of running away from Achilles, but he was not going to wake up from this nightmare. When they had circled the walls of Troy three times, I want to take your action and, and your attention, folks, up to Mount Olympus, where the Olympian gods are now in the throne room. And, and they're all, of course, now watching what is going to happen. It, events have come to a head inside of inside of this fight between the Greeks and the Trojans, and now it's one great champion against another. And on this day, well, either Hector or Achilles will meet his fate and die. And, and, and so the Olympian gods have all turned to, to Zeus, uh, king of the gods, father of gods and men, and, and waited for Zeus to declare on whether it will be Hector or Achilles that dies this day. And, and, and poor Zeus, he, Zeus clearly is a, has a huge affection for the Trojans and for Hector in particular. And, and, and Zeus does not want Hector to die. He, Hector is a noble man. He makes all the proper sacrifices. He's He's actually a favorite of Zeus, but on the other hand, Zeus has promised Thetis uh, that she that Zeus will grant Achilles great glory in battle to compensate for Achilles' poor mortal life. And and so poor Zeus is torn between these two. And and at this stage, Zeus takes down his huge golden scales in which he, he sometimes places the fates of men and, and, and renders decisions on what will happen to them. And and Zeus takes out the golden scales and, and into one of the pan of the scales, Zeus had placed the fate of Hector and into the other pan of the scales, Zeus placed the fate of Achilles and then Zeus held up the scales and, and well, the pan came down and one of the fates of the two warlords was decreed. And, and ladies and gentlemen, we don't know and I don't know and whether at this point Zeus actually was making a decision and, and had some choice over this and Zeus had decided and so the pans on the scale had moved in the direction that Zeus willed or whether Zeus himself was a pawn of fate and deadly destiny and, and was not really judging the fate of Achilles or Hector, but simply only reporting the, the destined fate of Achilles or Hector. But whatever the case was, the scales came down. Zeus turned to the other gods and said, Hector dies. Well, then it was just a matter of the mechanics, if you will, of how to kill Hector. And, and Athena, the, the goddess who hated all things Trojan and, and, and Hector in particular, Athena was more than delighted to be the agency which led to the death of Hector. So Athena flew down from the battlefield, and as the chase ran on, and as Hector was just beginning his fourth circuit of the wall, being chased by Achilles, 
Athena had appeared beside Hector disguised as a Trojan warlord, and, and she had spoken comforting words to Hector, said, listen, you don't have to keep running. I'm, I'm out here. You're not on your own. I'm here. I'm a Trojan warlord. I'm a great warlord. The two of us together, we can turn, and it, we can fight Achilles. I know he's, he, he's great and he's glorious, but it'll be two against one, Hector, so, so stop your fighting and I'll stand at your side. And, and Hector, of course, realizing he suddenly wasn't alone and was grasping on any straw to, to save his life, had turned around and, and exhaled and said, wonderful. And he had thanked the warlord and said, thank you for the courage of coming outside the walls and helping me. And, and Athena in disguise had said, don't, don't worry about it. Don't even think about it, but turn and face him. So at this point, Hector had stopped. He had turned and, and faced Achilles. And when Achilles had, had approached, Hector had turned around and said, very well, Achilles, if you won't negotiate any reasonable rules of decent combat and, and, and treatment of corpses, well, I, 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 if I'm going to have to fight and die, I'd rather fight and and look you in the eye and take my chances and have you throw a spear into my back when I when I run out of energy to keep running. So I will fight you, Achilles. And and at that point, Achilles had stepped forward and and Achilles had launched his javelin and, and Achilles had thrown this javelin or this spear directly at Hector. And Hector had actually managed to dodge and evade the spear throw. And then Hector, with his one spear, had turned around and taken careful aim and, and hurled his spear directly at Achilles. And well, if Achilles hadn't been Achilles, and if Achilles hadn't been wearing that glorious armor that the blacksmith Hephaestus had just knocked off the night before, well, Achilles would have been dead because the spear hit directly at the center of the shield with such force that it would have gone through any other shield and directly into the body of the warrior defending himself. But when Hector's spear hit Hephaestus's magical glorious shield, well, the spear fell hopelessly and impotently to the ground. It, it did no damage to Achilles at all. And, and at that stage, of course, Hector turned around to to the warlord that he thought was beside him for assistance. And, well, the warlord, of course, Athena in disguise, had at this stage vanished. And Hector suddenly realized that he was all alone in the plain and he'd been deceived by likely Athena or one of the gods. And Hector recognized he was alone. But Hector still had a sword and, and he knew that Achilles still had a sword. So Hector at that point drew his sword and approached Achilles. It was obviously going to be swords to the death of it or, or fists to the death of the swords didn't finish it. But Athena wasn't quite done. It's still invisible and, and unseen by Hector. Athena went over and retrieved Achilles' spear, the one he had thrown that had missed Hector. And Athena brought the spear back and placed it back into the hands of her beloved Greek champion Achilles. And as Hector swooped down and charged with his short sword, well, suddenly there was Achilles armed with a glorious, sharp, and lethally dangerous spear. And, well, Hector didn't stand a chance. Uh, Achilles' spear impaled Hector before Hector even got anywhere near Achilles' body. And, and Hector, the prince of Troy, collapsed to the ground in the dirt. Seconds of life left in him. Well, Hector turned up and... Knowing he was dying, it, it looked into Achilles' eye, who was gloating and triumphing over him. And, and, and Hector had pleaded and begged. He said, please, Achilles, do not desecrate my corpse. Uh, leave it for my people. They will even offer, they will even give you a ransom if you want. And, and Achilles had turned around and, and laughing at Hector and mocking him. He said, well, one man will receive a proper and gorgeous burial today, and that will be my beloved Patroclus. But as for you, Hector, you will receive no burial. Your head will be burned on the funeral pyre of Patroclus, and I will throw your, your body to the camp dogs and birds you will never ever ever cross to the next life in peace and and at that point poor Hector had looked up and with his dying breath he had prophesied he had turned to Achilles and he said Achilles you're not a man you're you're, you're some sort of a beast with a heart of iron and, and you have killed me but I prophesy now Achilles that your death now that you have killed me will be coming very soon outside the very walls of the city and and with that well Hector died 
Well, Achilles turned to the corpse of Hector and, and, and laughing said, why are you bothering to waste your breath telling me about prophecy, you, you, you dead man? I, I know I'm going to die and I do not care. Patroclus is dead. Nothing else matters. Well, at this point, the Greek warlords, witnessing the death of Hector, had come rushing up, surrounded Hector, stripped off his armor, and, and then in an act of, I think, extreme cowardice, uh, had plunged their spears into the dead body of the Trojan prince, a, a man that they had admired so much and feared so much in battle. But now that he was dead, they stood there plunging spears into his corpse and taunting and saying, you're, uh, you're not so dangerous now, are you, Hector? And, and then Achilles had waved them aside because Achilles was not yet done with Hector. He was he was going to make Hector pay the full price for Achilles' anguish and personal misery. So Achilles, waving aside the other Greeks, had dropped to his knees and reached for his belt and pulled out a sharp, serrated blade knife. And, and ladies and gentlemen, then Achilles had, well, picked up one of Hector's legs by the foot and holding the leg up, Achilles had taken that knife and begun to saw through the tendon at the back of Hector's leg. The jagged edge of the serrated blade knife, you could hear the edge of that knife sawing against bone up on the battlements of Troy. And as the people of Troy watched in horror, Achilles carved a huge hole through the back of that tendon on the back of Hector's leg. And, and then he threw the leg down, picked up the next leg and sawed through that leg too. And, and when and Achilles had done this, he threw the knife to one side and muttering to himself, he, he walked to a chariot. He, he grabbed a rope on the chariot. He, he tied the rope to the back of the chariot and threaded the rope way back to the body of Hector. And, and then Achilles took the legs of Hector and threaded the ropes directly through the holes he had cut in the back of Hector's legs. And within a moment, Hector, Troy's glorious and gorgeous and noble prince, lay naked, mutilated, and hog-tied on the dirt, tied to the back of a chariot. Well, Achilles stepped onto his chariot. He, he howled out a war cry. Then he whipped the horses, and as the horses got up to speed, they began to drag the body of poor Hector, the noble prince of Troy, face down in the dirt, his glorious brown hair streaming out behind, around and around and around the walls of the city of Troy. And the faster that Achilles drove and the more circuits he made of the wall, the less there was of poor Hector's body on the end of that rope. After his third circuit of the walls, Achilles let out a final howl of rage up to the people of Troy, then turned his chariot and began to drag the body of Hector back to the Greek lines. And it was at that point, ladies and gentlemen, that poor Andromache, in her bedroom, waiting for her beloved husband to come home at the end of the day's fighting, as she always did, well, Andromache had actually just begun to heat water for her husband's bath. She had filled a huge cauldron with cold water, placed it underneath the tripod over top of the fire. And, and, and as she did every night when her husband returned, she made sure that there was a hot bath waiting for him so Hector could wash off his body and clean himself and, and get rid of the dust and the grime and the blood from the day's work before he went over and embraced his wife and held his, his gentle son, his, his beloved little boy in Steinax. And that was her regular ritual. And well, Andromache was just beginning to do it and the water was just warming up. She knew her husband would be home soon. It was getting near dark when suddenly she had heard this fear some wail of cry of horror from the women of Troy coming from the battlements. And Andromache, knowing something was terribly wrong, her heart froze and, 
Then she grabbed poor Steinax and running as fast as she could, she made her way through the palace, the streets, and up onto the battlements of the city and, and looked down. And poor Andromache, what she saw was something that no wife or mother should ever, ever, ever have to see. She, she saw her Hector, her beloved husband, well, what was left of him, being dragged across the Trojan plain behind the chariot of Achilles. And Andromache didn't even see her husband's eyes and his face for one last time because there was no eyes or face left on that corpse as Achilles dragged it away. Well, Andromache staggered, she shook, she she turned. Fortunately, she handed her child a Steinax to, to a lady of waiting at the last moment. And then, well, black night covered Andromache's eyes. She collapsed into a faint. And from the walls of the city of Troy, the, the women of Troy, and then the men of Troy entered into a chorus of wailing and howling and grief and tears. They had just witnessed the loss of their prince, their, their hope for the future, the best man in Troy, their beloved Hector. What were they going to do now? And ladies and gentlemen, I think that's where we will leave this particularly horrific episode of Trojan War, the podcast. Uh, I, I don't know what to really tell you at this stage. You always hate telling this particular story of the death of Hector and, and, and the wrath of Achilles. And the only consolation or comfort I can offer you is that episode 16, which will be available for you on my website uh, any day now soon, if you if you soldier on into episode 16, I, I won't give you a plot spoiler, but I will promise you some moments of grace and respite from the hour of horror which you have just endured. And so so there is comfort coming inside of inside of our story. And and what I will do now is give you the standard options. If if you want to get to that episode as quickly as possible and, and seek comfort in it, then I'll say goodbye to you and wish you a, a, as pleasant a day as you, you can have, having just heard about the death of Hector. On, on the other hand, you might actually want to, well, even for therapeutic, if not intellectual reasons, want to stick around for the post-story commentary because it is going to be an awful lot lighter in tone. I'm, I'm going to be dealing with a heavy subject. I'm going to explore Greek and Trojan Bronze Age attitudes towards death and the afterlife and what happens to people and where they go and 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 whether they're judged or not for their actions and the type of post-life alternatives available to human beings in this time period. And, and though the subject is heavy, my presentation is going to be much, much more relaxed and fun and light. And, and I think for any of us who have grown up inside of the Judeo-Christian tradition and have some particular ideas about death and the afterlife, we are going to find the ideas of the Greeks really, really interesting and, and, and fascinating and, and strange and foreign and remarkable to us. And they'll also help us an awful lot to understand some of the things that have happened in the previous episode of this story. So if you want, stick around for the post-story commentary. It'll begin in, oh, five or six seconds and, and we'll pick up. And, and for the rest of you, we'll have yourselves as wonderful a day as you possibly can and get over to episode 16 where some grace and some respite and, and some hope and and, and some some solve from the unremitting misery that was this episode will be waiting for you. Have yourselves a great day. And for some of you, I'll talk to you in about 10 seconds. So here we are back at the post-story commentary and we're going to get into, uh, well, a much more light uh, than the previous episode examination of uh, Bronze Age and Homeric attitudes towards, well, death, dying, the afterlife and all those kind of things that happen to us. And and before I get going, I need to obviously provide a little bit of a caveat. Uh, some of the ideas that that I'm going to present are a little bit fuzzy and vague and, and there's even little bits of, of contradiction in some of the ideas that I'm going to present to you. And uh, maybe that's just, uh, well, 
attendant with the topic. When, when we get into conversations on what happens to human beings when they leave this life and head to the next, well, of necessity, we're into conversations which are based on, on faith and, and belief and hope more than they are in any form of empirical evidence that any of us have. So, so that's just a reality of this conversation. And another thing I should point out is that well, we do know historically that Greek attitudes towards death, dying, and what happens in the afterlife evolved and changed uh, over time, much as do the ideas and the beliefs of, of any other culture or religion. And just to set the stage here, of course, um, well, the story opens and, and the war that, that happens between the Greeks and the Trojans happens in 1250 BCE. So these Bronze Age Greeks had one idea or attitude about death and dying. And, and, and so Achilles and, and, and Patroclus and Hector and Ajax and Odysseus and Menelaus out there on the battlefield would have had their own ideas of, of what happened to people when they died. And, but then the story, of course, is not written down for another 500 years till 700 BCE or so. And when Homer writes it down, well, Greek attitudes towards death and dying have, have evolved and changed a little bit from the Bronze Age. And, and then, of course, the Trojan War epic consists of all kinds of stories and episodes and retelling of stories and episodes inside of the story arc that, that then are told and created and go on for at least another 700 years uh, into the classical Greek period and right up into the Roman period. And attitudes towards death and dying in this period, of course, were, were different. So let's start right away with the moment of death of a, of a warrior who, who has just received a death blow on the battlefield and what happens. Well, the first thing that happens, of course, is the warrior, the dying man, is always given the gift of prophecy. When, once it's all over, you know a warrior is not going to recover inside of a Bronze Age epic when they begin to prophecy. Because when somebody begins to prophecy it means that that they're they're seeing into the next life and therefore they can see other things that are going to happen to other people in the next life so in this particular story of course uh well hector turns around and, and prophecies achilles death and and i didn't mention it to you but but patroclus had actually when hector had jabbed a, a spear into him patroclus had looked up and and looked into hector's eyes and said hector you will soon die outside of these very walls and indeed that had happened so so the first thing that happens is a gift of prophecy and and then the moment of death happens and and at the moment of death, the way that the Greeks understood it is that the human being's body was attended by what they would have called a spirit or, or, or a psyche, which, which some of us growing up inside of the Judeo-Christian tradition might loosely uh, call a soul. And, and at that moment, apparently the, the mouth of the dead man would open and, and he would exhale a, a final, and in that final exhale or huff or puff, the psyche or the spirit would, would actually leave the dead man's body and it would begin its travel to the next life. Now, the travel essentially would would take the dead man to a, a place called Hades, which was with the underworld of the land of the dead. And a little bit of context here. Uh, way back before this war between the Greeks and the Trojans and in earlier mythological times, uh, there was a god who ruled all of creation named Cronus. And Cronus, that particular deity, had three sons. And the names of the three sons were Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. And, and Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades had, had launched a war against their father Cronus and eventually managed to destroy, destroy Cronus. And then Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, the three brothers, had decided to, to divvy up the universe into three equal parts. And, and in that divvying up ceremony, well, Zeus had been granted the heavens, Poseidon had been granted the seas, and Hades had been granted 
the underworld or the land of the dead. And 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 those were their dominions. Um, the, the three three brothers equally got fair shares in dominion over earth or human territory. And well, Zeus took full advantage of that dominion, largely by flying around and sleeping with as many human women as possible. Uh, Poseidon showed less interest, but he was responsible for an awful lot of storms at sea and some pretty nasty earthquakes. He was the earth shaker god. And, and, and Hades apparently played almost no role at all inside of human affairs because Hades was a was the god of the dead and human beings were very much alive. So so Hades is the place you go to to his dominion, the the, the land of the dead. Now we need to be a little bit careful. As soon as I mention the, the word Hades, uh, I have to caution those of you who were raised inside of the, uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition because whenever we hear the word Hades, we're really, really tempted to, well, immediately visualize Hades as, as some sort of a, of a nasty-looking red demonic creature with horns and, and a tail and maybe a, a sharp forked trident. And In short, whenever we hear the word Hades, we, we want to turn him into a, a sort of a Judeo-Christian concept of of. Mephistopheles or Satan or the devil or something like that. But but we have to be careful here because there was absolutely nothing inside of the Greek understanding of the god Hades to suggest that he was in any way a, a nasty or malevolent or, or, or a vicious god. And, and, and we have to always avoid in these conversations of death and, and the afterlife, uh, grafting uh, one mythology, uh, Greek mythology, onto, onto any other mythology or religion because that just makes things really, really confusing for us. So, so Hades was not... The, the Christian's concept of the devil or Satan at all. Okay, so the psyche travels to the realm of Hades, but before you can actually get into the realm of Hades or the underworld, the, the, the human psyche of the dead man faces a problem, and that's that there's a river that has to be crossed, and and that river is a river that surrounds the land of the living from the land of the dead, and and various Greek myths vary. Some some myths refer to it as the river Styx, and and that of course is the same river that the infant Achilles was dipped into to protect his body from physical harm, and and other Greek sources say it's the river Acheron. And we don't really know which river it was or if the name of the river changed in different myths. But but what we do know and what everybody's consistent on is that when you got to that particular river, to get across that river, you... Uh, you you had to take a ferry ride. You had to take a boat ride across the river, and 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 there was a ferry boat there, uh, which was guided by a ferryman, and his name was Charon. And and, and Charon, well, to to take the the journey across the river, you had to you had to pay the ferryman. You had to pay a toll, and 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 the Greeks even even back in that ancient Bronze Age time had had clearly understood the. Uh, uh, well, the great truism of human history that nothing is certain but death and taxes. So in, in this particular myth of Charon, they, they, they morphed the two together. You got death and then you had to pay the tax to actually even be allowed to die and move to the next life. So when you got to Charon, you had to come equipped with some form of payment, which which meant that the Bronze Age Greeks, when somebody would die, they would they would actually put coins inside of the, the dead man or the dead woman's mouth so that Charon would get his payment. And, and then later another myth and other versions of the story, the, the coins were sometimes placed over the, over the eye saw of the dead man and and many uh, cultural uh, funeral rite traditions which have nothing to do with Greece have, have adopted this coin over the eyes of dead man practice uh, well right down to the present so once you got there assuming that you had the payment well there was there was one other little problem that was that you were not actually allowed to cross from the land of the living and the dead until you could actually convince Charon the, the ferryman that you were fully and truly dead living human beings are were not allowed to actually make this journey the land of the dead was exclusively for the dead 
Now, I need to pause because a couple of you very well-read listeners are going to turn around and say, well, that's not quite true, Jeff. There are examples. So, so I will concede the two most obvious ones. There's, there's a woman named Persephone who, who spends half of her life in the land of the living and half of her life in the land of the dead. And, and she makes a transit back and forth easily. Uh, uh, she's actually the bride of Hades. And, and Persephone spends spring and summer in the land of the living, which is why we get, we get spring and summer and the flourishing of crops and agriculture and that kind of thing. And, and then in the fall, Persephone packs up her bags and and heads to the land of the dead, which is why, well, crops die and winter comes and nothing grows for six months till Persephone comes back again. So Persephone manages to make the transit easily, but of course, Persephone was a deity, so that, that's not quite fair. But but those of you who are really, really, really well-read are going to turn around and say, oh, yes, Jeff, but there's another epic where a human being actually makes it into the land of the dead for a visit. And, and I will concede that, but for fear of plot spoilers, I can't tell you, my listeners, the name of that particular individual who makes it to the land of the dead because, well, that individual is part of our current storyline. So yes, he makes it there, but 99.999% of humanity who is alive is not allowed to go to the land of the underworld. Now, this idea then that you had to be fully dead, I, Chiron had one other test of this, and, and this is an important point inside of our particular story, ladies and gentlemen, and that is that well, to be fully dead, it wasn't enough for your body to be dead. To be fully dead and for Chiron to be, or Charon to be able to willingly take you across the river, you had to have had the funeral rites properly and appropriately performed on your body. The, the ancient Greeks were, were, were very, very concerned about funeral rites. And, and if the funeral rites weren't done properly, well, 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 then you were caught, as I said, inside of the, inside of the story, you were caught in, a, in this no man's land, in this place between the land of the living and the dead, where, where your, your psyche, somehow still attached to a ghost-like form of your body, would, would have to travel around in the land of the living, but, but not fully alive and not fully dead. And, and, and they would stay in that state for, for all eternity if the funeral rites weren't performed. And, and we're still in that particular state. Uh, well, any injuries or mutilations or anything you had received, which had, had it caused your death. Well, you traveled around with those injuries or mutilations to your, your ghost form. And, and those injuries or mutilations weren't taken away from you until the proper funeral rites had been performed. So the, the Greeks were, were, were justifiably horrified by, by any body not properly well burned and then afterwards interred and buried because, because it was the most horrible of possible existences they could matter. And of course, this is percolated down into our current contemporary century and well, all of our walking dead uh, zombie stories or, or those of you who might have grown up on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, it, it, it's a horrible thing to be trapped between two worlds. And, and just how horrible it is is actually made very, very clear inside of this really poignant scene inside of Homer's Iliad. Uh, uh, this isn't a plot spoiler, but Shortly after the death of Patroclus, uh, Achilles is visited by the ghost of dead Patroclus, and and the ghost of dead Patroclus actually turns around and and complains to Achilles. And here's here's what Patroclus says to his Achilles. He says, Achilles, you have forgotten me now. You you were always attentive to me when I was alive, Achilles, but but now I am dead, and and you neglect me. Bury me quickly so I can pass through the gates of Hades. The spirits, Achilles, the phantoms of those who have died, they're keeping me out. They won't let me cross the river and join them. And clearly, folks, this explains why in every one of these trial by single champions inside of the entire Trojan War epic, the, the two warlords about to fight are, are very clear to delineate that the rules of the fight and the rules in all trials by single champion between reasonable men are that, well, 
kill and hack my, my corpse to death in any creative way you want, but once I'm good and truly dead, well, uh, take my armor as your prize, but then whatever you do, leave my body so that, so that my body can receive the proper funeral and burial rites and I can go into the land of Hades, the afterlife, in peace. And, and, and you know, Ajax and Hector, when they fight, they clearly agree to these terms and, and all noble warriors do. And the fact that inside of this last story of the Iliad that Achilles refuses to grant Hector's dying wish and, and, and instead brags that, that the dogs and the birds will get Hector and that Achilles might even eat part of Hector's flesh. It's, it's very clear that Homer is telling us that Achilles has now transgressed all bounds of human behavior and decency and is indeed quite beyond the pale in his singular obsession and desire to, to destroy Hector. And, and that is just fundamentally wrong. Now, assuming you do get a, a, a proper burning and burial, as is your due, then you get onto Charon's boat, you're ferried across to the other side, and, and then once you're on the other side of, of the river, well, here's what's available to you. The overwhelming vast majority of people that, that cross the river to the land of the dead are, are transported to a place right away called the Fields of Asphodel. And essentially what the Fields of Asphodel is pictured as is, is this long, vast, unending plain that, that goes on forever. And, and every human spirit who has ever lived in the entire history of the planet is flits about on this on this plane and in sort of a ghost form a vague sort of insubstantial ghost form of of their human body flitting around uh, they they remember their lives as humans but but inside of this fields of asphodel existence they they don't have any agency to do anything they can't make plans they can't change anything they uh, they, they they really can't communicate they can't get up in the morning and say what will i do today they're they're like so many bats flitting around in a dark cave for all eternity. It's, it's an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly bleak existence, this field of Asphodel. And we, we have to be very careful as 21st century listeners, because as soon as we hear about something like this, well, we immediately once again want to graft on our Judeo-cultural understandings. And, and we go, well, well this, this sort of bleak place sounds like maybe limbo or, 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 or purgatory. Maybe this, is, maybe this is just a waiting room where, where human souls who weren't quite good enough to go to heaven and, and not quite bad enough to go to hell uh, get to spend some time until they either make appropriate penance in the afterlife or people back on earth make appropriate penance or sacrifices for them and, and, and then they can move on. But the fields of Asphodel was not a temporary location. It, it was where everybody went. And, and by everybody, it's important for us to understand that the, the Greeks of this time period, folks, they, they didn't believe in any form of post-life judgment. Uh, there was, it wasn't when you got to the end of your life that, that some deity stood over judgment on your life and looked at what you had done in your life or not done or what you had believed or not believed or, or, or what you confessed or not confessed and, and, and then sent you off to a good place or to a particularly bad place as a, as a consequence. Uh, everybody from, from the most noblest and wonderful of people through to the most vile and horrific of people regardless of what they'd done in this life, ended up in the fields of Asphodel. So, you know, if you went there today, you would find, you know, Adolf Hitler flitting around uh, beside Mother Teresa, to use two very crude and clumsy examples to sort of give you the spectrum. You, you, everybody got the same result in the end. And, and, and we find this hard and we find this morally objectionable, of course, but that's because most of us were raised with belief, if we believe in God, so that, that well, actually cared about human beings, created human beings, and stood in some sort of judgment or interest over human lives. And that's certainly not, not, not the case of the Olympian gods, as I've made clear in many multiple podcasts. So uh, the Olympian gods show very, very little interest in the vast, overwhelming majority of human affairs. I mean, uh, this war that's been going on for 10 years involves 175,000 
20,000 fighting men. And well, inside of Homer's account of the war, maybe 20 or 25 of them have actually caught the interest of an Olympian deity. So everybody ends up in the same place in the end. Now, there were two notable exceptions to this one sort of this one uh, afterlife fits all sort of plan. Some human beings, uh, notably human beings who had one deific parent, got special treatment, at least in some of the Greek stories. There, there, there was a place which occurs in some of the Greek stories called Elysium. And, and, and though it's only vaguely described, the descriptions we have suggest that it was, well, offered much more pleasant uh, post-death accommodations, if you will. And, and, and some individuals got to go to this Elysium place. But whether uh, Hector would have believed in it or whether Patroclus would have believed in Elysium is, is really, really doubtful. A lot of scholars suggest that Elysium was a concept that came along Long later, maybe to sort of offer some respite from the unrelenting sort of blahness and misery that was the fields of Asphodel. And, and it's very clear that, well, inside of all of Homer's accounts, all warriors, including the most noble warriors inside of this story, when, when they died, they're going to the fields of Asphodel. And, and, and then, of course, some of you might be hoping that there's some form of, well, if Elysium was for particularly wonderful people, you, you might be hoping that there's some sort of particularly nasty, more, well, Judeo-Christian hell-like place for for the worst of us. And, and there was actually a, a, a tiny little, a nasty little section of the afterlife of the underworld, a place called Tartarus, which was much closer, if you, if you want to use your imagination to, well, what some Judeo-Christian traditions would describe as hell. And, and, and this was a place of perpetual torment for all eternity. But, but again, we have to be very, very careful here. You had to be particularly and uniquely and creatively nasty to find yourself condemned into Tartarus. And we only have a, a list of a few a handful of individuals in all of human history who got there. Uh, to get to Tartarus, it, it was not enough to be to be nasty in this life and to do nasty things to your fellow man. The only way you got into Tartarus is if you did something particularly nasty and provocative to a god himself, and the god went to the trouble of creating a customized little private hell for you. So if you, just to give you an idea of who was in Tartarus, uh, some of the, the most famous people, well, well, you already met one of them, um, a man called Tantalus. And if you remember my post-story commentary when I talked about Agamemnon and the horrible house of Atreus and the curse that attends that house, well, well, uh, Tantalus was Agamemnon's great-great-grandfather. He was the author of the original curse. And, and Tantalus's crime that had eventually got him thrown into Tartarus is that uh, Tantalus had chopped up and cooked up his son Pelops. And, and, and well, that wouldn't have been enough to only get uh, Tantalus thrown into the fields of Asphodel. But then Tantalus had turned around and after chopping up and cooking his son, had had the temerity to serve the flesh of a human being to, to the gods themselves. And, and that had crossed the bounds and that had earned Tantalus a private hell. And, and, and Tantalus's private hell, of course, has lived down through, through stories and literature and some of our words in the language. If you recall, Tantalus is condemned to spend all of eternity standing in a pool of beautiful fresh water with a, with a gorgeous fruit tree with wonderful luscious fruit hanging over him. And, and Tantalus is eternally, eternally hungry. But every time he reaches up to reach for the fruit, well, the branch in the fruit tree just sways up enough that Tantalus cannot quite grasp the fruit. And, and Tantalus is eternally, eternally, eternally thirsty. And, but every time that Tantalus bends down to, to reach for a grasp with this wonderful fresh water he's standing in, well, the water recedes just enough that Tantalus can't quite reach the water. So, so Tantalus is punishment for all eternity, and he's still in this pool of water with this fruit tree overhanging him to this day, is that Tantalus will be eternally, well, tantalized, if you will, by 
food and water, which, well, he can never reach to assuage his eternal hunger and thirst. So, so that's one private version of Tartarus or, or hell created by Zeus for one individual. And, and then the other equally famous individual residing in Tartarus now, of course, is a, is a Greek human king whose name was Sisyphus. And, and, and what Sisyphus did to offend Zeus, well, there are multiple stories about this, and, and they don't really matter so much as when, when Zeus finally managed to dispatch of Sisyphus, Zeus went to the trouble to create a personal little, well, Tartarus hell for Sisyphus. And, and, and that personal little universe that Zeus created consisted of three things. Uh, the universe Sisyphus found himself in his afterlife consisted of a, of a mountain, um, a large boulder, and Sisyphus in his full human form himself. And, and Sisyphus was condemned to an eternity of of, of every morning standing and, and rolling the the rock, that huge boulder at the base of the mountain to the top of the mountain. And Sisyphus would, would have to exert every fiber of his physical strength and mental strength and being just to get that rock to the very, very top of the mountain. And right when the mountain was about to level out to a flat plain and the rock would be firm and fully there, well, well the rock was condemned to to slip and then the rock would roll and bounce all the way down to the bottom of the mountain. And, and Sisyphus would be condemned to spend the rest of the day trudging down to the bottom of the mountain, knowing that the rock was waiting for him and, and knowing that he had to turn around immediately when he got to the bottom, put his shoulder to the burden of the rock and, and, and begin the struggle of pushing the rock back up to the heights of the mountain again. And, and, and he was going to do that unremittingly for all of eternity. And, and of course, that's where we get the term a Sisyphean task, ladies and gentlemen. And and I can't help but a, a side note here. I, of course, I've spent the entire time in this post-story commentary and uh, talking about beliefs about the afterlife. But how about a little shout out for those of you who are, who, those of you atheists who don't believe there's an afterlife. And, and, and I'll give you something fun to chew on then. And that's the, the, the myth of Sisyphus is, has been used as in various ways down through human culture. But the, but, but the one which I find the most delightful and one, one of my favorite philosophical essays is by the French existential 21st century or 20th century writer, Albert Camus. He has a, a short essay titled The Myth of Sisyphus. And and in that essay, Camus addresses the fundamental existential problem of, of, of how to make sense of, of life and how to drive meaning in an essentially absurd and meaningless universe. And, and Camus turns to, well, Sisyphus's essentially absurd and meaningless task. And, and Camus comes to the conclusion that, well, the struggle uh, to the heights must be enough to fill a man's life and make him happy. And, and we must imagine at the end of the day that, that Sisyphus is happy and gets some consolation in the pointless struggle alone. But read the essay, Camus does a much better job of explaining it than I do. And, and, and now there's only one final individual who, of course, is living in one of these private personal Tartaric hells. And, and ladies and gentlemen, of course, I, I, I refer at this point to humanity's benefactor, the God who sacrificed his own life uh, to save humanity. And, and I'm speaking, of course, of Prometheus. Uh, Prometheus was a titan, a, a pre-Olympian god, and uh, Prometheus's great sin or offense against the gods was to, was to grant human beings fire. Um, we, we were huddled, mud-like clods, living cold and shivering inside of our caves and eking out a miserable animal-like existence, and, and the gods were keeping fire away from us because the gods recognized that if humanity got fire, well, that would lead to all kinds of amazing things like, like knowledge and culture and civilization, and ultimately one day in the future, podcasts and and so the gods, to to avoid human beings actually, well, receiving this, this uh, well, fruit from the tree of knowledge, if you want to sort of co-join mythologies, well, well, the gods had said, Prometheus, you may not give human beings uh, this fire because then they will become much like gods in their stature. And, and the gods didn't want this. Well, Prometheus had taken pity on poor humanity and, and given us fire. And, and 
for his trouble, Zeus had condemned Prometheus to, to a terrible, terrible, terrible torture. Uh, Zeus had, had taken Prometheus and, and, and splayed Prometheus out on the side of a mountain and nailed Prometheus to the side of that mountain. And, and then Zeus had ordained that, that every day that Prometheus is up there, and he still is up there nailed to that mountain, well, well a, a, an eagle would fly from Father Zeus down to Prometheus's body, and, and the eagle would land in Prometheus's belly and then rip into Prometheus's living flesh and, and, and tear out Prometheus's liver and devoured in front of Prometheus. And then the eagle would fly away for the day. And that night, Prometheus's body racked by pain would, would recover and regrow a new liver. And, and then the next morning at dawn, Zeus would send his eagle once more. And, and ladies and gentlemen, well, as we end this particular post-story commentary, because this is as good a place as any to end it, I, I, I want you to think, of, if you will, as you're preparing for the next podcast, uh, um, poor Prometheus, a benefactor that, that made podcasts and, and myth and culture and storytelling and all the wonderful things that we're now celebrating even possible. And that's a great place to say goodbye. And I'd encourage you to listen to episode number 16. Uh, we'll continue the story. And as I promised everybody before we got to the post-story commentary, there, there will be some some grace and, and some compensation for the unrelenting misery that was this terrible episode we just finished where poor Hector, Prince of Troy, met his end. So have yourselves a wonderful day and don't forget to tune in to episode 16, which will be available to you any day now soon.